This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience, and just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. By Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Neil Hoyne, who is the chief measurement strategist at Google, uh, amongst other things, about to become an author um and all kinds of other great and fancy stuff so neil very much uh, thank you very much for joining us really looking forward to having you on and uh yeah where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a very brief introduction into i guess their background and, and journey today if you'd be so kind oh boy where to start um <laughs> you know by by trade typically more of an entrepreneur startup guy actually tech i don't think i mentioned this to you kyle i actually started my career in computer science just writing code and piecing everything together. It turned out to be a little bit more rigid when I was in university uh, than I would have hoped. I wanted creativity. I actually ended up losing points, I remember, in some of my first computer science assignments, writing code and functions that weren't included in the assignment. Apparently, that's frowned upon in standardized curriculums. So I always thought, since I was a self-taught programmer, I could piece together and learn things outside of it, which ended up being more around business and marketing which is what carried my career forward post-university eventually. And I'll skip all the ugly steps in between because it included the economic downturn in 2007, uh, which was when I went to uh, get an MBA at UCLA, but somehow through random fate ended up at Google about 11 years ago, working entirely in the measurement side. So everything related to the customer journey. So attribution models to experiments to eventually customer lifetime value, really spending a lot of my time today just talking to our largest advertisers. So about 16, 17,000 of them globally that spend over a certain amount, just figuring out what they're doing, how we can help them, how they actually use data to improve their business. Yep. Yep. Interesting. So looking forward to kind of delving into the whole kind of customer centricity piece right because i guess you yeah. you that, that's your life day to day my next question in this sequence is normally tell us a little bit about you know insert the name of the organization you work for but um i think everyone knows google so we can probably skip that part um but i guess in terms of where the role sits within the organization what you're tasked with achieving just give us a very high level overview on that if you could sure i mean the goal the goal of the role is really to if you picture yourself being at the C-suite and you're saying, we have all this data, we've captured all these insights about our customers. We're using hundreds, sometimes thousands of different software tools. What do we do with it? Like, where's the promise? Where's the different, where's the, where's the gap closed between the promise and potential of whatever big data, which seems to be increasingly popular. I'm confused by what big data technically is like what happens next. We get to even bigger data, 
But the sea levels are equally confused because they were promised a certain amount of value that would come from trying to be a data-driven company. And they often want to sit down with us to say, you know, not what Google stuff we should use. That would be outside our remit, but more, how do we improve our organization as a whole? Given that we talk to so many people, we see so many companies, so many business models, so many data sets, what does great look like? And then really understanding what those best practices are and how to walk them through that process, not to propose two or three year transformations as tend to be popular nowadays. But what do you do today to actually take that data and make more money? And whether if that includes using Google products, that's fantastic. If it doesn't, that's equally on the table. Just anything to help them improve their sophistication and application of data is where we try to focus. Yeah, yeah, fine. Makes makes sense. Um, and obviously, I know we had a, a funny uh, <laughs> funny conversation just before we clicked live on the podcast about your your um, route to kind of book authorship. Um, talk us through a little bit about how that came about. And obviously, I know you do keynote speaking as well. So tell us a little bit about that side of, of what you do. And, and the book the book is kind of a fortuitous thing. It, it happened during the pandemic, and people often ask, "Is it with with the book? You know, is it written to to C levels or to marketing practitioners or to students?" Honestly, it's written to none of them. Uh, it was originally written for as you know, we were talking about our we were talking about our kids. I have a two and a four year old, and as we were sitting at home doing the work from home thing, there was just a point to say, "How would I ever explain to them what I do?" And I find it, I find it adorable at their age. I do ask my son, I say, well, what do I do? And he just looks, he's like, well, Papa, you do meetings all the time, <laughs> which is, is his interpretation of my work. Now it's not to say he's going to read this book, but maybe in 10 or 15 years, uh, he'll be curious about the type of work that I dedicated such a large portion of my life to and want to learn something from it. Now, what does that matter to any other reader? That's not my children be like, is this not for me? It really means that two things came across in the text. One was with the text was that I, I found myself trying to be brutally honest with what I saw about the world of marketing and with data, not necessarily writing to please or impress a particular audience, which I say that because that happened in previous iterations where I tried writing to a particular audience. You say, well, what is it that, that a C-level would want to hear? This motivation was, no, I'm going to tell you honestly and as candidly as possible what's actually happening in the world, because I think it leads to a better conversation and better results. The other part of it is that it, excuse me, it allowed me to capture my voice a little bit better than, again, writing traditional business texts. No, nobody, I joke around with my wife, nobody snuggles up in bed at night with a data book. It's hard. Like, even if you love the subject, you're not like, I have this, this precious hour of my evening. I have, I have video games. I have more sleep. No, I want to read about data. And the, the net result of this was, was really a hobby project to really explain what's happening right now in the world of digital marketing what do you need to save yourself 10 years of learning or you know being able to peek inside the boardroom at some of these largest companies how are they changing their business what's happening things we can discuss i'm happy to spoil some of the surprises for you but it really just came from that context of saying the world benefits if we have more honest conversations about what's being seen with data and less around posturing around large academic terms and frameworks that then again puts marketers in the spot to say, how do I interpret this, assuming they can stay awake through it all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, kudos, kudos to you for, for going down that route because- um, hey, we'll, we'll see uh, if I did it. I mean, people may pick up the book and be like, <laughs> eh, we, we thought this would be more fun. No, it, it is pretty fun. And, and uh, that's actually the, the second part I forgot to mention. I mean, the, 
the original project of it was to be, hey, let's just put this out there. Let's have it a PDF stored, whatever. Just if anybody wants to find it, they'll have it. Again, my kids will have it. And it was actually uh, what happened was some students saw it because they were asking me, they're like, hey, what, what marketing advice do you have for us going out uh, into the real world? And so I sent them a copy of this and they absolutely loved it. Uh, in fact, one of them commented that they used it on their interview and it worked incredibly well. I said, all right, so now we got the students. But then some of the young practitioners were like, hey, this is incredibly exciting because I don't get to talk to the executives. Yeah. Like, all right, well, you can have a copy of it. And then <laughs> the, the executives came around, the people I weren't trying to impress. And they said, hey, this actually tells me what the data people in my organization are thinking or should be thinking. And, and so it kind of came from that way. And that led to, uh, oddly enough, it, it was about 72 hours from when it ended up in the hands of a publisher until they ended up buying the rights for it. And that ended up becoming the book. Well, so it, it's kind of been that that whirlwind story, but I, I could never have, you know, it's, it's kind of odd. I build predictive models all day and I could not have predicted what has happened so far or where any of this is going to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's bring this um, bring this back to the the kind of core topic then around customer centricity then, Neil. So a word that we're starting to hear more and more and more these days, and I guess based on, as you very rightly touched upon you know business executives now saying okay we spent all this money we bought all this tech we built all these teams where's the value where's the value that we thought we were going to get and um you know this customer piece becomes central to that to a certain degree right but but what what does customer centricity mean to you then that's a good starting point i think i i look at it very simply it's building your business around the people that matter most, which are your customers. And businesses tend to realize that. They will recognize it. If you say like, you know, they have those banners, a customer is a number one, you see that stuff. And it's much like data, it's very difficult to find a business where you say your customer is important. And they like, we should talk about this. They generally agree. But when you look at the processes of the business, they're not aligned to the customer at all. They're aligned to either the product to say, we're going to build the best product we can. We're going to push it out into the market. And we hope as many people who buy it as possible will buy it. Uh, they'll listen, they'll do a customer survey or something, but that's really not a customer-centric company. It's just, it's just the way that you push out products. A lot of businesses, to be honest, are just too short-term. You know, They're like, hey, the customer's nice. We like to have customers, yes. But what really matters to all of us and to our job is some type of immediate sales target. Some uh, some amount of transactions, amount of conversions that we need to get right away. And if you're listening to this and you end up in that position where you're like, well, that that's my business. That's that's what we're saying are not customer-centric companies. Those are transaction or you know short-term KPI-centric, which is to say the company looks at their success not as the growth of their customer base. That's incidental. It's we need to hit our sales numbers. We need to sell a certain amount of units. And when you start to think about it in that way, even though both arguably you are still selling to customers, you're kind of forcing your product on them. You're saying, I need to hit this number, whatever I need to do to hit this number, the customer will be part of that journey. But it's really just that relentless product after product, coupon after discount every day going into the office and saying, let's see if we can sell enough to hit that target. And where this customer centricity shift is going is really to say, stop, we're not going to do that anymore. And, and that, of course, leads to the question where companies are saying, well, okay, if it's not that, what do we do and how do we make that transition? Yeah. 
yeah, absolutely. So talk us through then, because obviously you mentioned there the, the shift that's happening. It's gone from this transactional, it's product focused, it's, you know, we'll build a product, we'll put it out there, fingers crossed, hopefully everyone loves it and buys it, right? But as you said, that's very much a look at us, you know, this this is our product and let's hope oh, the customers, do, yeah. yeah, let's hope the customers like it. Talk us through that shift then away from that. What what comes, how do you define what a customer-centric strategy is, looks like? What does that consist of? Um, the large part about it, when we just look at metrics, let's, let's take something very simple, is a company that's looking just purely at the number of products that they sold per day, per week, shifting to how many customers did we acquire? How many relationships did we start? And not necessarily looking at those relationships in the same way to say, well, a new person bought a product, but to look at this, the metric that's increasing in popularity, not simply from understanding, but also usage. It's this idea of customer lifetime value. How much are these relationships going to be worth? And it's a simple metric that's really just looking at the forward-looking value of any customer at an individual level. But it's starting to get businesses oriented around saying, look, if this customer is going to spend a lot of money in their relationship with us, we want to pay a little bit more attention to them than someone that transacted once, maybe on Black Friday, maybe with a coupon code, maybe something where we lost margin and will never be seen again. We start to see customer-centric companies resulting from just do they understand that? Or are they saying all customers are still equal? We love our customers, but all customers are equal. and We don't prioritize any of them. It's all just a CRM file to now saying, hey, wait a minute, these people over here are going to spend a lot. We want to listen to them, see what types of products they want developed, how we find more people like them. And the people that don't come back, we're not going to fire them or get rid of them, but we're just going to have less focus on them. And so what we start to see, this is kind of the the hallmark of customer-centric firms, is that they simply know who their best customers are. They know where they're getting their money, and they're going to invest in those relationships. Whereas the more transaction-oriented companies just kind of stand out at all customers and some waving their hands saying, hey, I'm really valuable. And some saying, I only want the really cheap stuff you have. And the company sitting there and being like, well, we love all you customers, but we need to hit our transaction goal. So any and all are welcome. And it just lacks a certain amount of focus. It hurts profitability. But that's just when you look at the contrast between the firm, one is very forward-looking, very strategic. The other is, what's our metric for the moment? Hmm. Yeah, it's really that's really interesting because I think, as you said, there's I don't think there's that many businesses out there that are looking at at stuff like that, right? Because as you say, it's um, it is about selling stuff, right? Whether it's a product, whether it's a it's lot, a it's a lot easier to measure short term yeah. stuff. I get yeah. that. I get yeah. that. How how many did we sell? That is easier than somebody coming in and be like. Hey, you know, we think Neil's going to be a great customer in the next couple of years. That requires a leap of faith. But if you think about it, and I say, you have you have a certain amount of number of hours in a day or, you know, amount of money you're going to put towards your marketing budget, does it make sense to spend on people that just aren't going to come back? But that's what a lot of companies do. That's the insanity of it all. Yep. Yep. How do you drill down then further into the, the kind of identification process of what good looks like? Because evidently what you're saying there is there is thing as bad customers, right? Yes, they might buy a product off you, but they may come once, never come again. You may give them a discount. You may have lost money on that person. And then you get into the realms where we've had people come on the podcast and talk about the types of messaging. You know, It's kind of starting to shift from 
that nurture the build relationship it's not always you know bye 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 right so yeah. uh, but how, how do you because what the, the process you mean like how, do, how yeah. do people do this yeah well the, the first part is and this is actually a, a lot easier than a lot of companies suspect but it's actually figuring out what lifetime value is for their business it's pretty straightforward here's the problem you type into google how to calculate customer lifetime value i'm pretty sure the first three pages of results are wrong <laughs> in fact, there's even one infographic that gives three completely wrong methods of calculating it, three entirely different numbers. And then at the end, they just kind of pose this question, I guess, to the reader, be like, well, we have three different answers. Which one do we pick? It's like, we don't know. Let's average them all together. And, and so companies get confused by this. And there's now becoming, there is a, a rich history, I understand, of companies that have tried these types of methods and realized they didn't go anywhere. And the reason is that they calculated this average lifetime value where they say all of our customers are worth $500. Based on everything we're talking about, we're talking about differences in customers. So if you say everyone's equal, you really can't become a customer-centric firm because you're going to be undervaluing your best customers, overvaluing your worst. And so the first thing is just to figure out the right way to calculate it. Now, Kyle, we don't need to go over it here because it does require a little bit of math, but it's within the grasp of everybody that's listening. I'll send you over some resources. Just here's what we find is best in class for calculating lifetime value. And it doesn't require a lot of data. You're talking literally a spreadsheet of transaction dates and transaction amounts. That's really it. That's enough to build that prediction. Some companies think they need a whole bunch of machine learning. They don't. So it starts with calculating it the right way, which is really you want to carve out a week or two weeks just to prove to yourself you can do it. Now, what you get out is kind of fun. You get a spreadsheet. That spreadsheet really for practical purposes, has two columns. One is a customer ID. So however you define it in a CRM system or an email database or a loyalty program member, this is how a first and last name, this is your customer's identifier to you. The second is just here's what their lifetime value is. And so you see, if you have 10 million customers, you have 10 million rows. Now, this is where companies start to have a lot of fun is that you know who these customers are. And by the way, some group them together, they'll put them into quintiles or quartiles and be like, this, this is, and you start to see that separation. Some people that will be worth a lot versus a little. And then what they say is, well, why? Why are these people valuable? Now, this is where the process unfolds is that they'll add a third column. This was the channel this particular customer was acquired on. And they'll segment those customers out. So just in our, instead of arbitrary quartiles, they'll say, hey, Let's take a look at who customers that were acquired from paid search versus social media. Let's see how their lifetime value changes. Or did they download our mobile app or not? Did they click on this creative? Did they use a coupon code? Uh, what time of day did they come from? Literally any dimension that they've captured around customers, they start to look at and they start to say, what are the dimensions and characteristics that are unique to our high value customers that we don't see with our low value customers? And for a lot of companies, it's a manual exercise because they've never looked at this type of data before. You don't need to do really you know, narrow hyper-segmenting to be like, well, we found exactly 10 customers that have this profile. You really want larger amounts of customers, which means you can just aggregate this data based on the things that are meaningful. So these are the customers acquired during the holiday season or people that bought something that they identified as a gift for someone else. Those characteristics can all go into a spreadsheet as they're available which means you're taking apart a lot of the heavy lifting. You don't have to have your whole data set perfect. If you're saying, we're pretty confident that we know these people did this, then it's very easy just to say, well, let's look at the lifetime value of people that did this versus that. 
and then see, does it change? And what you end up with is every time you go through this exercise, you get a better understanding as to who your high value customers are. Or you can do the opposite. Here's the low value customers. These are the things we shouldn't do as a business because they attract people that come in and we never see them again. But that's the process, right? So you really have just a week or two weeks of figuring out how much each of these customers are worth using some best in class methods. And then everything else is your own journey where you're saying, just what do our best and worst customers do to us? Yep. Yep. Okay. Fine. So the starting point is understanding best customers are purely the ones that have the highest, uh, the highest customer lifetime value, right? That's is is that simple? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool. And then the process thereafter. Then this stuff absolutely fascinates me. So you're talking about okay, if you've identified this type, you know, group of people, whatever you want to call it, these are our best customers. How do you go about acquiring more of those customers versus attracting the ones that you don't want? And how do you develop them? How do you retain the ones that you've got? How, how do you kind of go about, you know, navigating those, those waters? The first thing I, I make sure to stress to everybody is that the inclination when you see the customers who are high value is you start thinking, you're like, wow, if only I can get those people. So I said, there was someone in mobile gaming. I couldn't believe this. We were doing an analysis where some high value customers, great customers are like, you know, a couple hundred dollars. There were some high value customers that were spending close to 800,000 US a year in mobile games. <laughs> now, I never went through the analysis to figure out exactly who these people were, but the data was real. The money was in the bank. And, and so your, your first attraction is, well, I would just love those types of people. And, and that's for, well, you, you can try that, but there's not many of those people out there and they're probably going to be a little bit expensive to acquire. And so instead, the focus is simply, what can you do to get slightly better customers than the customers you have today? So the first thing we ground ourselves in is incremental improvement. If you're looking at your customer base and it has a certain distribution, you're saying, look, you just want to improve. Just, you just get slightly better. Just make a little bit more money. That's enough. You don't, not just the, the top tier customers, just... If this is what your where your customers are today, we just want to change that distribution so a few better customers. And what do, what do companies do? Well, sometimes they just take that insight and they say, look, if we know great customers are coming from this channel or this product or this creative, we're going to focus a little bit more on that messaging. And I always use travel as an example. If you do if you do testing in travel and you ask people what they want to what, what they want to see. You'll generally see things like vacation and holiday packages surface up. You'll see low fares and discounts and promotions surface up. And that's how a lot of you know, travel companies could say, hey, this is how we want to target. This is what the masses are telling us. But when you look at that top 10% of travelers, they're business travelers. They're usually less price sensitive. They care more about service. They care more about on-time rates. And it's a different type of messaging. And all it takes you to know is to say, this is what the really valuable customers want to see. They want to see this type of messaging. So now you're going to use a different type of landing page copy or a different type of creative. Your marketing strategy will change, but it's really iterative. Every insight you find is a way you can activate. So it can be on the channel. It can be whether they have a mobile app, what you put in your creative, you know, on the Google side and not to make this, you know, specifically platform centric, you can do this on any, on any ad network. Some companies just say, look, here's a list of my high value customers. And they send over those email addresses through a product we have called Customer Match. And what we, they say is, Google, use all your signals to find people that are like them, to find these similar audiences. 
And that's what we do. And then they have a campaign that they know is targeted just to those high lifetime value customers. But that's what they're looking at. Where the only thing that's changed on their side, this is not new technology, but now they're paying attention to that larger value. Whereas before they'd be like, hey, we targeted a whole bunch of high lifetime value customers. Well, what was their transaction amount? Well, no, we're looking, will they come back? Will they continue to spend? And so as long as businesses have both sides, they have the tools to target these people, but now they also have the understanding to measure them. Yeah. So what you're saying there basically is you can have, you know, high lifetime value customers, right? But there might only be a handful of them. So it's not yes. necessarily always the best thing to go, right, well, let's, we need to go and find 10, 15, 100, 200 more of these people because they might not exist, right? But it's about creating a message to find those people. The message is different. Hopefully you can acquire more, but your best customers might be over a larger average. The, the value might be lower, but there's more of them, right? And then there's some at the other end that you kind of want to get rid of, right? Okay. Cool. Well, I mean, if I can get my head around that, then then anyone can. So we're, we're in a, we're in a good. <laughs> that's, that's the idea. And and what I what I what I try to lay out in this book is I say, look, I'm not. If you really want to go after those high value customers, like that's your strategy. Shit, go forth, do it, do it, go get those people. Yeah. But I just want you to know some of the practical rules around it. So just like we were talking about how to calculate lifetime value, lifetime value needs to be at the individual level, not at the average level, for the reasons we talked about. Those are just some of the rules in place. Uh, other rules, it's very difficult to swing a low lifetime value customer into a high lifetime value customer. You can do it. You can spend a lot of margin. I like to use personal relationships to ground some of these concepts. It's like meeting someone where you know you're a terrible match with them. You can dump a lot of time and effort trying to make the relationship work, but you will be absolutely exhausted at the end of it. But companies need to know the same because I'm surprised you said the eternal optimism where companies go and say, look, these are a whole bunch of cheap customers, but once they see how great we are, they'll fall in love with us. And then they don't. And they end up heartbroken. They're like, where's, where's all of our customers? Like they, they were never going to love you that much. It's best just for companies to be able in, the, in this journey is not to say dogmatically, this is what you do and what you don't do, but just to know the limitations around these types of things. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good advice. I guess um, in terms of the process of building relationships, because I guess that's kind of a key component to this, right? Especially if you think about those high lifetime value types of customers or categories of customers, of course, you'd love to have more. And I guess what you're saying is, look, I'm not saying don't go after them, but just make sure that's not your only strategy. right? Um, but I, I guess it's interesting because the flip side of the conversation early on was we want instant gratification. We want instant sales numbers. We want instant conversion. So I guess there's a play here somewhere that says, well, those high, high lifetime value customers, you might acquire some of them that you're going mm -hmm. after. That's yeah. not going to be an overnight thing, right? So how do these companies go about building relationships to acquire those, you know, higher lifetime value customers? I mean, I think the, the message of uh, one of the messages to get across is it's simply you don't you don't need to propose on the first date. You can give relationships time to develop. There may be some customers and those relationships that are worth time, but will take several weeks, several months to progress. And then they'll be incredibly valuable. And your short-term metrics may not represent it. You'll say, ah, they just bought this low-tier product, but it may be the gateway into them buying other products and services later on. And you need to be able to understand it. 
And so that, that's kind of the separation that I look at when I'm, I'm looking at these. Well, how do, we, how do we handle that immediate gratification? If you can calculate lifetime value, you'll have that understanding. But you also need to have the faith that it works out. That's why I, I use that. I use those, those personal relationship examples deliberately is because people say, look, you could meet someone that is, is going to be perfectly compatible for you in a great relationship, but there's, you do not propose on the first date. That's not what you do. That is way too forceful. But go and see what you look for B2B companies. You're interested in their product, right? Hey, I'd like to learn more. They say, ah, stop, stop. Fill out this lead gen form first. Give us your phone number. Let's call you. You're like, that's not how I want to do this. I want to learn about your products, but that's how they measure. And it's the same thing. You may come to a website and you may say, hey, look, I'm going to take my time. I'm looking for holiday gifts right now. And they're like, no, no, no. We need you to buy today. We're going to give up some of our margin to do it, even though you would have been willing to pay full price. And that's the problem is that the short-term thinking just drives us to behave in really strange ways. Now, it's not to say you can't go out and you you could go out and you could propose to a whole bunch of people. And some people may say, yes, I, I joke about this in the book. It's not to say you won't find those people. You know, maybe it's three out of every hundred people you talk to will accept that. But then you also have to ask yourself, wait, 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 wait a minute. If I went to the pub and I started proposing to people, who's saying yes? Like, are these really the people I want? Welcome to marketing. Now, (laughs) here's the optimistic note, though, that, that has to carry forward with this. The reason why this is so powerful is that most companies are still doing the short term transaction game. And so you don't need to be perfect on this. You don't need to have the perfect delivery and find the perfect people. You just need to be slightly better than they are. Like it's just an auction. Like that's the goal. The goal is not to be the perfect person for everybody. The goal is is not to be your idealized self. You can get there, that that perfect customer-centric company. The goal is simply to be a little bit more customer-centric than the people you're competing with. And that's all that that's all that matters right now. Yeah. Yeah. Where where does the whole kind of notion of being customer first play into this because i've had people come on the podcast before that you know said we're we're trying to be a customer first business and um, you know is it data driven or is it customer first and the difference between that i guess there's certainly an element in getting this right right for for the purpose of this conversation for sure i i I don't put a lot of weight honestly in those terms it's the same thing of you know joke around with digital transformations and those types of principles because they seem to be moving targets. Like I can say anything is customer first. It needs to be lifetime value. No, it needs to be customer service or net promoter score. And so I try to be very specific. When I talk to companies and I want to understand how well do I think they focus on their customers, I'll generally ask them, and this is a question a lot of companies struggle to answer. How many customers do you have? And they puzzle this. Now, apart from a subscription service, and even then there's some caveats to it, but take, take, your, take your mainstream retailer and I say, how many customers do you have? And they can list me a CRM file. Say, well, these are all the emails we've captured. I'm like, that, those aren't relationships. How many customers of those are coming back? They'll struggle to answer that. They can give you arbitrary benchmarks. Well, we haven't heard from them in a year, two years. Well, maybe that's how they buy. And that's where the conversation generally starts with it is basic questions. How many customers are actually active? How many relationships? How many of these people are going to come back and talk to you? And that's where you start to see them stumble. So you don't even understand how many relationships, how many customers you have 
because they never have any criteria for what makes a customer. They just know, again, they'll drop back. Did they order from us lately? Well, if they ordered, then they must be a customer, right? Like, oh, some companies use, well, if they ordered in the past 12 months by unique mailing address, then they're a customer. Yeah. I say, all right, good. I'll take that. So if I don't buy from you this year, you're telling me I'm no longer a customer of yours. And then you see them say, well, no, no, you're, you're a customer just as we define it based on our metrics. <laughs> you're not. And you start thinking, you're like, how is this any way to go through the world? Like, that people kind of strange. Like you have like a best friend, you don't hear from him for like, you know, we're no longer friends. You didn't call me. This is, you call me 13 months later. And, you know, this is where companies, well, what should we do? And that's exactly what we're talking about here is if you're using forward-looking metrics like lifetime value, you're saying we expect people to come back when they come back, but we have some objective model for if we still consider you to be a customer of ours, and these are the people that aren't. And so it uses some type of legitimate criteria as opposed to just guessing or saying everybody has to conform to your business. Mm. And so that's kind of where I look at things is I say, what are the basic competencies? What are the language? Because if you go inside these companies, if they struggle to tell you how many customers they have or how much these customers are worth or investing in the long-term relationship of these customers, if these metrics fail to materialize inside an organization, you can, you can bet yourself that no matter how they position it, in investor relations filings or, or PR stints or advertising, that company doesn't give a damn about their customers because they don't have any metrics by which to incentivize their internal stakeholders. You're building a project that let's, let's do something customer centric and everyone's scratching their head to be like, well, shit, my KPI is orders. What am I? They don't care about the customers. It's only an outside thing. It's a, it's an illusion which they try to convince themselves because there's no way they can measure it. There's no way they can drive the business, and that's the first. That's why it's the first step they need to overcome. Mm. Yeah. Where does I'm just thinking out loud here, and um, this is often where I put myself in hot water, Neil. But where where um, where does the whole experimentation piece fit into this in terms of trying to? Get because you know it sounds like you're saying first of all look, you need to define some metrics internally like you need to know who your customers are what they're worth how much how often they buy because if you don't know that you can't categorize if you can't categorize you can't put you know right message right time right channel yada 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 right but I guess there's an element for a lot of these businesses that are on that journey that they're kind of like well we don't know this stuff so we're going to have to kind of you know, guesstimate yes. on this and, you know, and that type yeah. of stuff. So where does the whole experimentation piece come in? Well, you, you don't want to, you don't want to guess on lifetime value. You do want to be precise about it, but once you have it, let's, let's talk about that basic campaign that I talked about before. It's like, let's say you're going to, you're going to use a tool like customer match and similar audiences to find more of these people. What does an experiment look like? Well, it's pretty straightforward. What is the lifetime value of those customers that were acquired through that campaign? versus ones that you acquire through other business activities. If you were targeting and trying to grow lifetime value, you should see the lifetime value of customers acquired from that campaign ideally go up. If you do the opposite and you're saying, we're going to exclude these people from marketing because we perceive them to be low value, then you're excluding those particular, and you'll, you'll know who those people are because you're selecting their email addresses or their IDs to target. Well, let's exclude those people and say, we're not spending money on them. And then you look maybe at the end of the month or the end of the quarter and say, we didn't spend any money. How much did those people spend? 
Sometimes you'll split it. We're going to, oh, these are, these are 5,000 people we weren't going to target. Let's target 2,500 of them. Let's target, not target the other 2,500 and see how those two groups do differently. And you often don't see a lot of change. That's kind of the aha moment. Hmm. Hey, we spent a lot of money and they did the exact same stuff as the model predicted. Or more practically, it's simply saying, if you're running a test, whatever that test is, if you're looking at a landing page or creative optimization, just add a lifetime value lens on top of it. So even if you choose and say, look, we're not going to bid, we're not going to target on lifetime value. This would be my challenge to you. I say, just calculate lifetime value. So you have it, tuck it away. Don't even use it. But what I'd want you to do is in your reports and your dashboards, when you're looking at a test and you're saying, oh, okay, the, we tested the red button versus a blue button, just layer lifetime value on there and see, is there something that your higher value customers preferred? If you're testing, like I said with the, earlier with the travel creatives, if you're testing those, is there something that your high lifetime value customers preferred more than other variations? And that's what I want to see because what happens then is a the conversation becomes unavoidable. If different pieces of your organization are looking there and saying, look, we may be measuring based on cost per order for a campaign. And you see lifetime value be like, well, wait a minute, this particular channel is bringing customers that are coming back. This channel, these people are never going to be seen again. That starts to get people's interest. It starts to get their attention. And that's what urges people along that transition is you can't ignore it if you, if you know that data. You come to me and say, here's 10,000 great customers. And I say, well, I'm never going to see these people ever again. And that person says, here's 10,000 and these people are going to come back and buy multiple times. Well, I want more of those. And just that very simple exercise, it wasn't that everyone said, well, we're doing the customer lifetime value thing. Or we're going to be customer centric. It was simply seeing the difference provokes a great amount of change. And, and that, that really is what ties back to that earlier message for like companies that are trying to be more, you know, customer centric too often, they take it on as a whole strategy, right? Here's our 15 part strategy. And what happens is the people that are trying to execute these strategies lack the data to do it. I'd love to be customer centric, but I only have orders or I'd love to be customer centric, but I'm motivated by how many new customers I acquire. I don't care where I get them from or how much they're worth. Then you can't be a customer centric firm. But if you make something as simple as lifetime value available to them, you let them see those differences, then all of a sudden they start gravitating towards that because they understand the power of it. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting there because I think obviously across the entirety of the data analytics industry, right? We we often talk about the cha- you know, change and transformation or a lack of change and transformation yeah. being one of the reasons why these things haven't delivered as much value as they should have delivered and, and things like that. And often it's a case of these organizations just really aren't sure where to start with this stuff, right? And as you said, it becomes a big, yeah. big two, three year program that, you know, by the time they've got through it, they've lost everyone. Everyone has jumped off the back of the wagon, right? And um, are, are kind of chasing the next buzzword, <laughs> right? The, the, so next, it's, the next big thing, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Out of interest then, how many, and I know you said, you know, the premise of the book was to just give a completely candid view on what you see. On the balance of things, if you were, I don't know if you can put a figure on it or, you know, it's a, it's a case of many or not so many, but how, how many do you see from an organizational perspective that you would say are genuinely customer centric versus aren't, but claim to be? Less than 5%. Really? Wow. But they are disproportionately weighted towards the top performers in their particular market or vertical, Hmm. which means that if you're in a market 
where your competitors are capturing all the high lifetime value customers. No need for them to promote or talk about it. But what you start seeing is all the customers left over, the people they exclude, they're falling to you. So you could be like, hey, we have 100 customers. Our competitor has 100 customers. We think that we, we, we split the market well. But if they have all the high lifetime value customers, and that means that they're largely seeing better profitability from those customers, those customer relationships are coming back. So then they're spending more, which means they can spend more time on servicing those customers and developing new products to meet those customers. And then meanwhile, you're looking to say, well, how do I compete? And then what happens is those companies that are on the top just slowly start, they get the, the best customers and start slowly moving down. And from the outside looking in, you can't figure it out because a lot of companies, their mindset goes to product. Well, what's the product these companies are offering that's attracting people? No, it's not that. It's who they're targeting. Well, what, what product and how do they possibly do this at the margins of these products? And that leads to the wrong questions. And so those companies stay exactly where they are. They think, well, we need to dump a whole bunch of money into new products. We need to give away more margin. And it's just fundamentally that those companies that are leading are using it in a f- just a different way. And so that's really what comes out with it. And it's it's remarkable because you see this sometimes with these larger companies. And I'm being careful not to name names because some of these companies are very careful. They don't want to reveal themselves as, as, as leveraging the strategy, although they are. When they go into new markets, they almost force their competitors to under-respond. So you see like these large companies coming in incredibly sophisticated and expected just bloodbath, right? They're just going to annihilate you. And you come in and you're like, oh, we only lost two or 3% of our customer base. Well, that that's okay. And so they kind of scale back and they're like, hey, we're good. We're, we, have, we have the large portion of the market and they just come in, look, we thought they'd get 50% a share. And the reason is that they're, they're doing the same thing they do when, when they launch is they start at the very top and they say, we just want to get the really valuable people, people that are going to spend the most. And then we're going to slowly work our way down. We're going to get less and less valuable customers. But to our competitors, these are going to be their most valuable customers because we're starting on that end. And then over time, the company's like, I don't get it. My customers spend half as much as their customers. So of course, I can't give them free shipping or great customer service. They just don't spend that much with me. And look, well, what do we do? Why, why are they? People must love them. They must love their brand. And they look more at the results than they do at the tactics that drove them there. Um, so do you think then, kind of holistically speaking, that the biggest mistake that most organizations are making in that kind of you know, hope of being customer-centric is just the strategy by which they're trying to operate? Is that fair to say, typically? Or? I would say that that's exactly it. I would say just the, I would say here's here's my list of mistakes that I would say companies make. One is they don't acknowledge that change is happening or they feel the status quo is enough. Hey, we've been working just fine for 10 years. There's no need to do the customer centricity thing. Uh, Or they think it's too risky, right? Trusting that customers will spend. Uh, They think the status quo is enough. The second thing that happens is that uh, they overcomplicate the transformation. So let's digital transformation is a great idea because we've been talking about this, this stuff for decades. Digital transformation used to be fairly straightforward, and the companies that were successful with it was to say, here's a process inside our organization that could benefit from being digitized. That's a simple transformation. People call up over the phone. We can move it to email. Pretty straightforward. Same thing, lifetime value. We're not calculating it. Now we are. Where things can get overcomplicated is people say, well, we're not just, it's not a process we're trying to move one to one. We want to do everything. 
And then you know where this goes, right? You end up with a steering committee of 80 people, a three or four year project. You bring in the consultants, you bring in the enterprise software. Everyone has these lofty ambitions, but then you go back to your desk and you have no idea what it means to you there. And then inevitably it fails. And that's what I'm trying to avoid with people here. It's not to say, look, it's compelling, even if this is, to say, we need to start doing this right away. Don't. I'm saying, just get a little bit better tomorrow. And then that's enough. But that's that, that mistake is just that companies overcomplicate it, especially when they see the power of it. They say, well, if we're transforming, transforming has to require a steering committee and a multi-year plan and a waterfall chart for some reason. <laughs> And, and whenever you simplify, you're like, how about how about you just calculate lifetime value? And today, today being December 13th, how about you do it before the end of the year? This is achievable. Then, then you make progress. And then you make that part of your dashboard. And then that's progress. And then people start bidding on it. Or you run one test that's customer focused. And then you're better because of it. Mm. Yeah. What's your take on this whole personalization and one-to-one marketing? Because I've had... A couple of different people come on the podcast that sit very much at opposite ends of that that, <laughs> that spectrum and and debate. So keen to hear your thoughts on, you know, um, whether that's the right way to go or not for the for the large majority. I, I it falls in the the one to one marketing category has been sadly abused to the point where I'm not exactly sure what it means. <laughs> And that's, that's, it's a provocative thought because for anybody listening, if you have your own definition of it, you're probably like, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what one-to-one marketing means. And it's not that. It's that if I were to find 10 people and ask them what one-to-one marketing means, they will be each very sure in their convictions of what it means. And it will mean entirely different things. What, what I tend to move towards is when I look at this idea of personalization, I think personalization is great. I'm not sure what exactly companies mean by personalizing as a consumer. So it's like, okay, I think Nike has made some great progress. You can personalize your shoes. But do I really feel like Nike has a good sense of me as a customer or has a one-to-one relationship with me as a customer? Do I think a company has it because they have my email address, my phone number, my mailing address? In some categories, yes. In some categories, no. What I would prefer uh, with companies, and this is where I, I think that it actually starts to make sense, is the same way. And again, this is why I fall back because it's a lot easier. If you look at all the people you have in your life, right? You have your your close friends and family members. You have your your professional colleagues and acquaintances. You have the Uber driver who you're never going to see again. I would say that the amount of personalization and the amount of data I want them to know about me will differ based on where they fall in my life and the type of relationship that we're going to have. Families can know my, my, my long-term ambitions and my secrets. Uber driver probably doesn't care. And when I look at the lens of personalization as to how well they should know me or how they should respond to me and what I need, I look at it within that lens to say, how do I interpret those relationships? The same thing with companies. If it's a company that I that I work with frequently. Like if it's an airline I travel or that I'm going to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars with a year, I would expect them to know my preferences a lot better than somebody that I will interact with where I'm fairly low value. Right now I kind of see that commoditized across the boards. Like everyone gets the well we'll add your first name to an email and call it personalization. And that's yeah. not necessarily the case. And where I see frustration or where I see a lot of value is that 
if I contact a company and they they know this, they know what our relationship is and they know this data and they know how to use this to improve the experience, then I feel like they're doing a better job. To the lens of what we've been talking about, I think where companies spread themselves thin is they say, if we're going to personalize, we want that to be available to everybody. So we want to know everybody the same way and engage with everyone the same way, which means that you then regress to the mean, which is, well, we can't possibly talk to everyone. Let's identify them through a phone system. You know, that was really bizarre. And I'll tell you just how it how it gets to, and this is just some of the segmentation we talk about, just personalization quickly, is on the travel side. Um, there was a time, I haven't flown in, you know, as much as I have pre-pandemic, but there was a time where I just had a phone number for the airline. It wasn't a call center. It was just, it was the same person all the time who knew that I was because they had my caller ID, but they knew my preferences. They knew what I needed. They knew how to interact with me. That's what I consider to be a one-to-one relationship. When I call up and I get a phone center, it's like, oh, well, we can identify him because of a loyalty program number. It's like, no, that's a mechanical efficiency. So to your original question, I, I still don't know what that means. Um, I think it's really expensive to do one-to-one. So if you were to you know, go out there and be like, well, just someone reaches out to be like, Neil, we want to have a great relationship with you. What do we need to do? Unless you have something guiding like lifetime value, I don't know why that exercise would be worthwhile. It's like, no, I don't want to come back to you. I, I get those like I get those personal appeals from like hotel managers. It's like, well, next time you're here, it's like, look, I haven't traveled to your country in seven years. I appreciate that. But is that the best use of your time? Or is it a, because we're one-to-one, we reach out to every I don't know. That's I just get confused by what <laughs> what are you trying to do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Neil, I, I'm conscious of, of time. I guess where I'd like to kind of try and finish up here, obviously, you started to talk about there about the pandemic, pre-pandemic digital transformation, which obviously there's been a lot spoken about what the pandemic may or may not have done for the whole digital transformation journey for a lot of organizations. But has anything changed in terms of customer centricity and how businesses are trying to value customers or, you know, anything within that remit from a, you know, what the pandemic has has kind of forced upon us, I guess. I would say three things. I would say one is that there's a significant amount of differentiation in terms of customer behavior from people acquired pre versus post pandemic. And businesses need to recognize that. A lot of businesses I work with simply have their customers grouped together and they look to kind of pull out those trends. But the fact is they have so much legacy history with customers that the people acquired after March of 2020, unless they were explicitly pulled out into their own segment, they're lost. And so the first thing is just to realize that those consumers that came around March do have different behaviors. That's number one. Number two is the customers prior to that point. And airlines wrestle with this as loyalty programs. And that's why it's it's one of the more obvious examples is that companies do need to be deliberate about what happened with the customers that I almost say went idle during this pandemic. As markets start to open up, what I am starting to see in the data is that the customers that were acquired previously, that may have gone dormant, are starting to reactivate and starting to have roughly the same profiles. So when we look at people pre, that were acquired pre-pandemic, the people we thought were high lifetime value then are still high lifetime value now. Their exact spending thresholds may have differed, right? They're not They're not spending as much traveling, but they are still high lifetime value considering all other customers. We didn't see the the whole pot being shuffled around. The third part is we need to figure out what's happening with retention of the customers that we previously acquired. And this is a case of businesses being deliberate of really understanding to say, 
do your products and services still fit the consumer if markets reopen? And that's that's a challenge that businesses are wrestling with. These are some of the best conversations. It should not be ego. We don't want to lose anybody. But you have to be pragmatic to say, if your services, let's just say, for instance, we're entirely supporting work from home efforts, and that profession is going back to the office 50 or 100% of the time, you can't just start offering coupon codes to hope to keep these people around. It's either you have to change your business to be able to meet their needs in hopes of keeping them, and there has to be a case to do it, or you have to accept that these people are going, that is the end of the relationship. It's like you're like they're moving away. Like you, you can't keep dating. They're going across the country. They're going to a new country. They're not going to call. You can't be like, no, whatever I can do to keep like <laughs> companies. I worry will lose a lot of money if they're too aggressive in the fact that they don't want to lose those customers. And we just have to accept this is a market change. Uh, and that's a hard pill for some businesses to swallow, but I worry they will lose a lot of money. So that, that's really the COVID takeaways. The COVID takeaways, people are behaving differently just during that segment is so understand them the best you can retain them wherever appropriate. And also keep focus on those pre-COVID customers who are coming back and just understanding their relative value and what they're bringing to you. Yep. Nice. Nice. Well, look, as we finish up then here, Neil, talk us through how, how can people get hold of your book? When's it going to be ready? What's the best way for them to reach out to you if they've got any kind of questions or are keen to kind of pick your brains on anything they may have heard today? You, you, can, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. I don't know if you'll add a link to it on the profile, but if not, just search my name on LinkedIn. I think there's only two in the world, so I should be relatively easy to spot with my <laughs> title and what I what I generally talk about. Uh, if you're interested in the book, which is really continuing this conversation for a couple hours, uh, it's going to be on ebook. We're doing the audiobook version now. It's on hardcover coming out in February. You can pre-order it. Uh, the website is, is just convertedbook.com or you can put neilhoyne.com. They both go to the same place. Uh, and all the information and details. And the first couple of chapters are there as well. So if you want a little sneak preview, I think the first three chapters are now online to download. Nice. Well, when we when we publish this podcast and it goes live, Neil, we'll put all, obviously we'll tag you into the LinkedIn uh, post and we'll, we'll put all the links in there so people can get access to, uh, awesome. to that. I appreciate Excellent. that. Thank you. No problem at all. Look, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. It's very early where you are, so you can go and get breakfast now or whatever time it is. And um, <laughs> and yeah, we, uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon, Neil. My pleasure. Thanks again. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Bow, 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 bow,